time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Did you say I've got a lot to learn? Well, don't think I'm trying not to learn Since this is the perfect spot to learn Teach me tonight Starting with the ABC of Right on through the XYZ of it Help me solve that mystery of it Teach me tonight The sky is a blackboard So very high above you Should a shooting star Go by I take that star To write I love you A thousand times Across the sky One thing isn't very clear, my love. Should the teacher stand so near, my love? Graduation's almost here, my love. Teach me.
the sky is a black gold so very high above you should a shooting star go by I take that star to right high thousand times across the sky One thing isn't very clear, my love Should the teacher stand so near, my love Graduation's almost here, my love Teach me Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program. My uh, guest this hour is uh, professor at is a professor at the University of South Carolina Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, civil rights, and education law. He has uh, written a new book. It's called Schoolhouse. I want to make sure I get the whole. Uh, yeah, Schoolhouse Burning is the the title of the book. And it's by Derek Black, who joins me by phone. Derek, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Oh, now I see the full title, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. Um, let's, uh, Derek, let's, let's start right there with the title, um, the relationship between public education and the assault on, the, uh, on America's democracy. Um, how are those two things interwoven? Yeah, I mean, I think that so much of the conversation about education, when people focus on it, they think, well, you know, that that's just public education policy. It's not, you know, it's not, uh, doesn't pertain to our democracy. But what I lay out in the book is the idea that what's happening is that the attack on public education is a way of undermining our democracy ourselves. And so what I try to do is help the uh, reader understand that you can't separate public education from our democracy and you cannot separate the motivations of those who, who are attacking our public schools from, from their motivations in regard to moving this nation in a different direction. Now, we know that, that there are lots of problems with, uh, with schools in America, public schools, especially in uh, urban areas, but um, how much... How much is attack and how much is just organic failure? Well, I mean, I think what we have are some people who set our schools up for failure. You know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a former civil rights lawyer, so I, you know, I'm incredibly sympathetic to the fact that there are, you know, millions of, of poor and minority students across this country who are not getting what they need from their public schools. And one of the things I try to focus on in the book is to say, but the public school is not the place to point your finger because, well, there may be reasons to point at your, at your local school district, but the real source of the problem resides in the state legislature, resides in the federal government. It resides in policies that are being adopted to make sure these schools don't succeed, right? To make sure that folks uh, you know, in the wealthy areas of Michigan aren't responsible for having to worry about or think about kids 
on the other side of the river, on the other side of the state. The idea being instead of a public education system that serves and guarantees education for all of our kids, we have state legislatures who are trying to create little islands of opportunity that let, you know, affluent and well-to-do communities or those who want to go to private school to go do their own thing at the public expense and leave everyone else to deal with what's left over. And when you mentioned uh, Michigan, which, of course, is where uh, where my show is based, um, I, I, f- I thought you might be uh, working your way up to mentioning Betsy DeVos, who the rest of the country has only been dealing with for about four years, but uh, or a little under four years. But we've had her as part of Michigan for a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, she's a piece of work. I mean, you know, I guess I should have came to Michigan and spent some time uh, – figuring out who she is because you know she she has caught me off guard in a number of ways and partly it's just her dog-headedness uh her her refusal to follow the rules her refusal to do her job you know i mean in my assumption she was okay yeah she, she likes charter schools you know she likes um you know vouchers but but so what i mean i, I wrote i wrote this piece uh, when she first took the job because i you know i've been doing federal policy for quite a while and testify as an expert in cases and whatnot. And I said, if she really understood what this job was, she wouldn't want it. That's what I said. She doesn't have any power. She doesn't have any influence. She can't do any of the things that she wants to do. And what I underestimated was that she would forget about doing the things that she's supposed to do. She would spend her time out trying to cheerlead and push state legislation by friendly governors. And that when federal rules and regulations got in her way, she would break them or rewrite them and run with it until somebody, literally a court, held her in contempt of law. I mean, I just, I, I could not have predicted it. So, yeah, you know, too bad I didn't didn't know her a little bit, uh, a little bit better before she came to Washington. Yeah, because people in Michigan, her behavior as Secretary of Education um it was really no surprise to people in Michigan because um she was a, a proponent of charter schools put a lot of money into it put a lot of influence behind politicians that would support uh legislation that would uh, make room for charter and private schools and it's um you know this this isn't new for Betsy DeVos she just has a different uh uh platform to work from yeah you know and the and the, the unfortunate thing about it is when we think of robber barons so to speak we think of that you know coal industry or you know somebody who wants to you know run the you know the department of you know, the epa or wants to be in securities department or something like that. i mean you know you don't think of robber barons coming to run you know the Department of Education. It just doesn't seem to fit the job. But I think that's how she caught it off, caught us off guard, which is to say, look, you know, um, we're coming for our market agenda and recapture of wealth uh, in the schools too, and we just, you know, it caught us off guard. What is um, now? We know that that Betsy DeVos is is an example of someone who has you know, risen to a place where they have a tremendous amount of power and and a, a tremendous ability to attack the public school system, not necessarily by attacking the school system, but by 
um, encouraging and pushing and promoting and cheerleading, as you put it, for alternatives um, and, and leaving the public school system behind. Um, but what are some of the other things that you consider attacks on the public school system? Well, it, it's really, I focus a lot about disinvestment. You know, if you, if you look at the aftermath of the last recession, you know, full decade after 2008, right, and at a point in which the economy has rebounded and is booming, uh, states had still, a number of states, about half the states had still failed to replace uh, the cuts that they had made uh, at the beginning of the recession. So they cut public education and never put it back. Um, and so that that's an attack, right? I mean, you know, public schools were not getting everything they needed in 2008, and then they started getting a lot less. <clears throat> and the other thing that happened was student needs started going up during that period, right? So we more and more kids are being born, and some of them into more challenging life situations, and public schools didn't have the resources to do that, right? So that that's an attack on public education, to sort of starve them for resources. North Carolina, a perfect, perfect example of that, North Carolina enacted what was said to be the largest cut in state taxes in the nation's history. And um, at the same time that they were doing that to the, they started taking those tax cuts out of the public schools. So they cut off like 20% of school funding in in two and a half years in the state of uh, North Carolina. At the same time that they were creating more charter schools and more vouchers. So you are, you are cutting funds and, raiding them and putting them in another area. I mean, it was it was a full-scale assault on the idea that we had a responsibility to our public schools. Some people would might say, you know, Derek, you're overreacting. You know, they're they're just trying to get the economy back on back on board. Fine. Even once the economy come back, and in a year in which uh, North Carolina had a five hundred million dollar surplus, they still refused to fully fund their schools that year. So, you know, we have a, a different breed of, of politicians, so to speak, who, who have come into office, and they are just antagonistic towards the public school system. And, you know, there's lots of cultural changes happening that ex- to explain that. And, you know, Betsy DeVos claiming that money doesn't matter and that we're wasting our money on schools certainly doesn't help, help the matter any. Derek Black is a law professor at the University of South Carolina and an education advocate. His new book is Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. We'll have more with Derek straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, 
save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Fabulous 60s, the marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You'll thrill to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel. Who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War. All for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jeff Snareplane, Lothar and Hand People, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, Golden Protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Do it today. Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com. This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Derek Black is a law professor at the University of South Carolina and an education advocate. His new book is Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. We'll have more with Derek straight ahead. I remember, and I wonder a little bit, Derek, if schools haven't become unwieldy in in public schools in terms of what it costs now to operate them because of largely technology. I'm old enough to remember a time when, uh, you know, all the the equipment that I needed, uh, you know, to get my education was a notebook and a couple of number two pencils. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about laptops and you know, internet access and and IT services to make sure that 
you know, kids are, are learning and not, you know, surfing YouTube. Um, it, it's, it's become a very different thing to try to fund public education now. Well, that, that's true, but the, the one thing, and I think this, you know, Betsy DeVos really compares apples to oranges when she talks about, you know, how we're spending X amount on public education now compared to before. I mean, number one, we're, we, we didn't used to educate in the regular classroom, if at all, students with special needs, right? I mean, that is a relatively modern phenomenon, right, that, that started happening in the 70s, which that's is the true. federal government's pay. You got to let you know students with special needs come to school, and you've got to meet their needs, right? And so, of course, that drove up costs. You know, by the same token, it really isn't until about fifteen, twenty years ago that we had a national policy that said we expect low-income students and students of color to achieve at similar levels to you know wealthy, uh, privileged families. Like that takes money. So, you know, part of this is that the, is that we have we are serving a much broader spectrum of students. And we are trying to get them to the same level as their advantaged peers. But what we have not done is put those resources into the schools to actually meet those needs. And I think, you know, Elizabeth Warren had some, some pretty good data and, and talking around this and said, look, you know, Congress promised 40 years ago or 30 some odd years ago to, to, to cover 40% of the cost of educating uh, students with special needs. And we're still in, in the teens or, or, or somewhere around there. And so there's a huge gap between what Congress asked schools to do and what it actually paid for. Um, and, and we could say the same thing about, you know, low-income students. So um, part, and this goes back to your very first question, a lot of this sort of blaming of schools is accurate in some respects. You say, oh, they're not doing their job. They're not meeting these students' needs. Yes, there, there is truth to that. But the fault doesn't lie solely or primarily with, with the principal at, at your child's school or the superintendent. It is further up, you know, the, the political ladder where people are making structural decisions about the type of education opportunities our children are going to have. And so my book is demanding that we, that they step up and trying to help the rest of us understand uh, where they're failing and, and why they need to step up. Isn't it um, a kind of a matter of priorities and, and political will um, I, I was really captured by the phrase in the title of your book, Derek, uh, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy, because of a phrase uh, I read in George Washington's farewell address where, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quote, but where essentially George Washington says that if we're going to be a democracy we and, and we expect the people to govern themselves, we owe it to them to make sure that they're educated. Yeah, that's exactly right. I and mean, you say we owe it to them. Yeah, to not be too nice to, to Jefferson and them, they were scared about the consequences of not educating them. That what I say is America was a. It's harder to think about it now. America was a radical experiment in democracy. The world was run by monarchs and elites at that moment in time. And what Jefferson and Madison and, and Adams and those folks were saying is, we're going to turn it over to the people. Now, of course, we all know that not everyone was part of that at that time. There was slavery and exclusion of women. But Well, the and there were safeguards in place to make sure that the people didn't get too much power as well. That, that, that's right. So there was lots <laughs> of sort of built-in stuff. But the theory was if the people are going, if regular people are going to play a part in this democracy, 
my goodness, we need to make sure that they have access to public education for our own safety. There was this flip side of it where, you know, all the state constitution, many of the state constitutions say, you know, we are obligating the state through our constitution to provide for public education because, quote, it is the surest guarantee for the protection of our liberties. So there's this other idea that we regular folks, the only way that we can ensure that our liberty will be protected is if we are sufficiently educated enough to protect it ourselves. And so, um, you know, going back to the modern day, my, my fear is that what we really see is more of an elite-driven uh, system of, of political control that isn't really interested in the rest of us participating, and that this attack on public schools is really an attack on, you know, widespread democracy, because it is the case that voting and public education and the expansion of each of those things have correlated with each other throughout time. So if what we are doing is shrinking public education, it is my belief that we are shrinking intelligent voting. We are shrinking the popular will of the people so that elites and wealthy can, can make the decisions for us. And there's when you, when you talk about elites doing the governing for us, um, that's not a new concept in uh, American history. But there's... Um, one of the things that you advocate is that there needs to be more money in public schools. But yet there is an argument out there that is is difficult to um, to really dismiss that in the case of Washington, D.C., for example, they had the highest cost per student and the lowest test scores. Now, that brings into question, you know, what the tests are and, you know, how they fit into all this. But um, is it just a money problem or is it a commitment problem? Well, I, I mean, I think money, you put your money where your mouth is, right? So the essence of money is, is a commitment problem. But, you know, I, I do want to address the Washington, D.C. thing uh, because, you know, folks often point to that. And, and the Washington Lawyers Committee did a study probably about eight, nine years ago uh, to, that really showed how, how poor that example is to prove the point of those who think that we're wasting money on education is. And what they said was, like, first of all, you have to take geography into account. Washington, D.C. Is, is an enormously expensive place. And you have to take in what's the student population need, right? So what they did was say, let's look at the, the, the four counties or jurisdictions in the area um, of Washington, D.C., uh, you know, PG County, uh, Alexandria, Arlington, um, Montgomery County in, in Maryland, and, and maybe one other, Howard County. And what they said is, if you compare, um, you know, the D.C. schools to what is spent in those schools, what you will find is that those county school districts, actually, I think all but one at the time, were spending more per student than the D.C. schools, number one. And number two, the D.C. schools poverty level, so students living in poverty, was two to three times as high as several of those other schools, right? So they actually were literally spending less than others in their geographic area and had needs that were two and three times as high. So, you know, does D.C. spend a lot more per pupil than Anderson County, Tennessee, where, where I'm from originally? Of course it does, but there's an entirely different geographic and demographic population going on there. And so, you know, Bruce Baker's 
research on this is top notch. And you know, there's consensus of data that, that clearly shows that money matters. I mean, it does matter what you spend it on, but the more you spend on schools, the better the outcomes are. The data has borne that out uh, for, for decades. That's not to say that poverty doesn't matter, right? It costs more to educate a low-income student than it does my kids, right, who have two, two parents with graduate degrees. Um, that doesn't prove that money doesn't matter. It just proves that educating a, you know, a high-income child is a different cost than a low-income child. So there's just, unfortunately, too much apples to orange comparisons out there. But I get it. You know, I mean, hey, regular folks out there are not education policy scientists. And someone like Betsy DeVos can, com- you know, can compare an apple to an well, an apple to an orange. And, and if a discerning, you know, viewer doesn't can't can't see that the that the image has been t- turned into black and white, they won't understand that she's she's really making a false comparison. One of the things, and, and part of what I meant when I asked my question about money versus commitment is. Um, I, I've heard people talk about public education as being just outdated in the way it's designed. Um, mm. We have, you know, schools that we funnel a lot of different people with a lot of different needs into and then try to give them a one-size-fits-all education. And that was okay sort of during the industrial age and you know we're still operating on an agrarian calendar there are all these things about public schools and the way they're operated and my point was shouldn't we be rethinking the whole model and then maybe the funding takes care of itself to some degree well i I certainly think you you, you're on to something i'll just tie it to you know i did a ted talk um uh, presentation about a year or so ago that that talked about you know the post Civil War era and what literacy skills were needed then versus what little literacy skills were needed now. The the one thing that's common, I guess, from from way back then to now is that you know there are more printing presses and more newspapers in, in existence in, in eighteen eighty and ninety and at any other point in history, the, the, the printing press was like the blog of today. Everyone had one. So reading was, was, was fundamental. But I always call Ben it, Franklin it, the original blogger. Yeah. It was really, it was the heyday of newspapers back then, you know, the penny press. But, but the thing that's changed is that one of the things that's changed is that we aren't engaging primary text anymore. Um, that what people really read are, they don't read the book. They read what someone else said about the book. And on TV, they may not even read the book either. You know, the folks on TV are restating what someone else said about the book. So that there's all these sort of folks characterizing information, but no one's really teaching information. And that sort of goes to like, well, what are the schools doing? But there's this other piece. If the world is dominated by um, or information is sort of controlled by these these uh, manipulators, so to speak, then kids have to be able to sort reliable manipulators or reliable purveyors of information from ones that aren't. And that's the scary thing today is that, um, you know, kids actually cannot distinguish fake from real information on the Internet, which is where they live now. And, you know, it's actually not a very easy thing to teach either as I sort of looked into it. So 
you know, if we are going to be in a place where, where we operate on some common facts, um, we do have to begin to teach critical media literacy uh, and critical thinking, right? That it's not just about information anymore. It's about those skill sets that we approach information with. And, and our students are at a deficit with that. And we've probably always been at a deficit with that, but it may not have been as crucially necessary, um, you know, in a prior time than it is now. So we have a tremendous amount of work to, to do on that. You know, does that mean that we just need teachers trained in different things? Or does that mean we need to rethink the nature of how we deliver school? I mean, I, I probably should leave that to, to some other experts out there who know better than I, but, but I definitely can see the issue. But I, I, I'm I'm just putting forth the thought that that maybe it isn't only money, but it's it's a restructuring that needs to happen. Um, we just we can't imagine that that a system that isn't as effective as it could or should be um, would be repaired by lots more money. Well, and, I'm not, and I'm not arguing against spending money on public schools, Derek. Please don't take yeah, that yeah, no, from I, my questions. Well, yeah, I mean, I had this conversation with my, a related conversation with the neighbor when when the coronavirus first hit, and I think actually some of it is playing out to be true. I, I think I would feed that there are some kids who probably need to be at the public school um, in person with instruction um, all day long. I think I would probably concede, and we're all learning it to some extent, there's other group of students who may not need to go to school every day, uh, that may not need a teacher every moment of the day, and that you can allow them to explore and do work on their own or study on their own so that we can redirect you know, those, those teaching resources, not to the detriment of, of the child who's not coming in every day, but, but, but to the benefit of the child who come in every day. Because you're right, not, not everyone is in the same place. So you know, particularly as you get into high school with your sort of, you know, high achieving students, I think a lot of those students could give them, you know, meet them on Monday and see them again on Friday and they would be just fine, you know. And again, I'm not the one that needs to be making those type of decisions, but I think that general principle holds true. So, you know, maybe we don't need as many classrooms as we have right now. And maybe with the number of teachers that we have right now, we actually could meet all of our students' needs. You know, I don't know, but I think um, it's possible. I, I don't rule out that possibility. Um, but I am, you know, most concerned about the fact that, you know, we really don't seem to be concerned with meeting all students' needs in the current structure or an alternative one, because I think there's an agenda out there that just doesn't want to spend money on public schools and certainly doesn't want to spend it on someone else's children. That is, um, and and that is problematic because um, once we've we've made the commitment, we and we ought to be doing the commitment well. Yeah, and um, instead of that, we've got people uh, trying to to undermine the schools, and um, and you know they're they're finding um, some wedges out there. Uh, and some receptive audiences. It's sort of like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Attack the schools, underfund the schools uh, in such a way that they don't perform well, and then people will begin to hate them, and we will spend even less money on them. We'll try something else. So, 
you know, we we do have a vicious cycle going on in some, in some communities. And and unfortunately, a lot of it depends on um, the environment that kids come from. You know, you're talking about the kid that can come in on Monday and Friday and be fine, and then there are kids who need to be there every day for the instruction. Very often, the difference in those two scenarios is that um, that the parents are not engaged or involved in a child's education. Well, yeah, that, that's true. Or, you know, to, to, to be fair to the parents, or they're working too. So you're right, factually speaking, they're not involved, but they're not involved because, you know, they're working evenings um, and working two and three jobs, and or they're, sing, you know, they're single parents. And so, um, yeah, those kids need, need support, and they need transportation in a way that, that other kids uh, don't. And, you know, I think that was, you know, to go back to the atoms of the world, you know, they didn't say bring us your wealthy and your healthy. They said bring us all your children, right, from the highest ranks to the lowest ranks. That's what Adams wrote. Because for America to work, um, all all of our kids, regardless of need, uh, have to get that basic uh, stepping stone into citizenship. And so I think we get a lot of, it's easy to sort of blame parents, and um, and I always say to me that's not the question. The question is what type of democracy do I want to have? And if democracy turns out to to a, a terrible failure, um, you know, I'm not going to feel very good by going, well, you know, it's all those parents' fault. Like, so what? I'm living with a with a crumbling democracy, and so I think it's on us to make to make this us being those with with the capacity to make it work to to, to make it work for all of us, uh, even if. You know, even if we have varying capacities to, to to participate in that process. Well, Derek, I cannot believe how fast the time is going. This is an important uh, subject, and kudos to you for uh, the work that you're doing. The book, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy, um, is, is a great place to dig into this and look at what's happening to um, contribute to the, uh, the the flames uh, on public education. Um, Derek, I always give guests an opportunity to uh, let listeners know where they can find out more about you, about your work, the book, other things that you've uh, written and done. Um, do you have a website? Yeah, I do have a website. It's Derek W. Black dot com so that's derek w black dot com and then follow me on twitter uh, you can also find it there i'm i'm at derek w black there and i'm you know try to hone in on on the most important issue uh of the day when it comes to educational law and policy sometimes i go for two but i try to stay on point and stay in my lane so if, if you're looking for uh, short cliff notes of what's going on um i think that's a good place to start well, Derek, thanks so much for spending this time with me today. I really appreciate it. It's an honor and a privilege to talk with you. Same here. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care. My guest was uh, Derek Black. He is a uh, University of South Carolina law professor and uh, public education advocate. His new book is Schoolhouse Burning, um, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program.
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange, it's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. 
Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman Steady Sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman Sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The big thing I remember the most of, about uh, growing up as a child was kindergarten. Now, to me, the only thing, uh, uh, kindergarten, the only good thing about it is that it, it teaches you how to say goodbye to your parents without crying. That's all. After that, forget it. They got nothing else for you to do. I remember standing in that schoolyard with 27 snowsuits on and uh, my idiot mittens, you know. The idiot mittens are the ones with the string that go up your arm and around your neck. And the only cool thing about it is if you talk in the left hand, you can listen in the right. Hello? How'd you that? Yes, all right, fine. Find another kid with idiot mittens on, you run up, you pull his left mitten, and he smacks himself in the face with the right. <laughs> yeah, I used to love to do that, boy. And we all stood in that line crying. Oh, where are we going? We're going to die. You better get us killed. And the next day, I was very cool. Goodbye, mother. Take care of yourself, won't you, dear? I should be home, oh, 12.30, quarter to one, somewhere around there. Might be late, I may have a little milk with the boys, you know what I mean? <laughs> Tell Dad I'll see him around dinner time. Now, once they get you inside, they're lost. They got nothing for you to do, because you're only five, and you're too dumb to care about anything else. They try, though, you know. One and one is two. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Right, yeah, cool, man. One and one is two, yeah, right. What's a two? <laughs> don't care, man. So then, she takes, so then, they, they try these other things, basic things. No, no chairs in kindergarten. Everything's done on the floor. Sit on the floor, stand on the floor, you go home on the floor. Everything's in a circle on the floor. So you can look at each other. Little ugly kids with pointed heads. <laughs> and you beat time to Mozart. Ta-dum-da-dum, boom. How long do we have to keep this up? I don't know. Go another 10 minutes. We'll beat her to death with these sticks, all right? <laughs> then she says, okay, children, it's time for a snack. Great! Now you're talking. Yeah, snack. I want a Hershey bar. Me too. Give me a baby room. Right. No such luck. She brought out a box and gave us each an old, dried-up, brown, nasty-tasting, gag-you-stick-in-the-throat graham cracker. <laughs> And you gotta pray for something to wash it down. Please, we're gonna die if you don't give us something soon. We got the hiccups and everything, please. She said, certainly. Went over, got a case of milk that's been sitting on the radiator for about 80 years. <laughs> Nothing in the world better for a bunch of five-year-old kids than good old lukewarm, curdly milk. <laughs> yes, sir, we loved it. And the straws in kindergarten are the worst things in the world. Worst straws I've ever seen. They're good for one suck. You <laughs> and that's it. Flat as a piece of paper. You're sitting up there. Then to top it off, she says, okay, it's time for a nap. Yeah, there's nobody in the world anymore wide awake at 11 o'clock in the morning and a bunch of five-year-old kids. 23 kids on 23 cots sleeping wide awake. <laughs> Only one sleeping is the teacher. She's gone. Thank God for this break, boy. I'll tell you what. I graduated from that into the first grade. 
I always wanted to get into the first grade because you have your own desk in the first grade and that's just a part of being cool, man. Yeah, because I remember there was one guy that was just as old as the rest of us and his name was Richard, man. Richard was cool because he had his own desk. They skipped Richard because he could tie his own tie, you know. Yeah. They used to bring him up, bring him up before the assembly programs and the president of the school say, I will right, now have Richard tie his tie for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, Rich, yeah. yeah. Rich was cool, man. We used to pass by the room, man, and peep in the first grade and see them all in there sitting at their desk. You can see Rich. We try to make Rich laugh. We make faces at him. Hey, Rich. <laughs> Rich scared to laugh because he get a beating, you know. Now I got my own desk. Ta-da! I love this desk. Of course, they all look alike, but I got to find out how to find my own. Because I don't want anybody to know that I'm not cool finding my desk. And I sit down at my desk, look around. I know this is my desk because I sit in front of Crying Charlie. <laughs> crying Charlie's got the coolest cry in the world, man. You can't hardly hear him or nothing. He just opens up his mouth <laughs> and tears roll down his face and everything, man. I know this is it because I sit in front of him. So every time I come in to the room, I just look for Crying Charlie and I sit right in front of him. Of course, if Crying Charlie's absent, I don't know where I'm going to sit. You know? <laughs> Crane Charlie's absent, I go to his house and sit in front of him. Yeah, gotta fold my hands on top of the desk so the teacher will know what I'm doing. Got some initials on the top of the desk here. Somebody carved them all the way through to the floor. So when you write on your paper, you rip it. Yeah. Got an inkwell. Yeah, boy, they still don't trust us though. No ink in it. Afraid we'll drink it. And I would too, man. Ink is cool to drink, boy. Hey, drink ink about 325, go home with a blue tongue. <laughs> Used to make my mother faint. Ma, yeah, look. <laughs> my mother was cool, man. She would faint for anything, boy. I used to get hit in the head with a rock, cover up the blood, wait till I get right up on her. Ma, look. <laughs> Way to go, Ma. Cool, yeah. She got me back one day, though. I was playing with my navel. Yeah. Oh, navel, navel. <laughs> My mother said, all right, keep playing with your navel. Pretty soon you're going to break it wide open. The air is going to come right out of your body. You'll fly around the room backwards for 30 seconds. Land, you'll be flat as a piece of paper. Nothing but your little eyes bugging out. Keep it up. I used to carry band-aids with me in case I'd have an accident. Gonna learn to uh, write in the first grade now. They give you this paper, grade triple Z. Grade triple Z paper with wood still in it. Big hunks of wood still floating around in it. You gotta write around the hunks of wood. And the lines are about eight feet apart. They don't want you to miss getting in between them lines, man. Don't want you to start crying. They give you these pencils as big as a horse's leg. And you rest them on your shoulder as you write. A, B, may I have another piece of paper, please? I will, I will, I I learned the correct procedure for going to the bathroom in the first grade. You just don't raise your hand and, you know, say, may I be excused? You have to let one finger go up. If you want to do one thing, you want to do anything else, you have to let it see two fingers. In case of a tie, two wins out over one. For the longest time, I told the truth if I had to go, you one. And then one day it hit me. I was in the bathroom playing the soap dish game. 
seven nothing, favor me. And it hit me, now what's she gotta know what I'm in here doing for? It's none of her business whether I'm wanting it or doing it. That's why they put doors on the bathroom so nobody will know if you're wanting it or doing it in here. And it's not bad enough that the teacher knows I'm wanting it, the whole class knows I'm wanting it. You go back in the classroom, people say, how was it, one <laughs> So I just started lying after that. You know, hey, if I had the one, one, <laughs> they think I'm one in it. Yeah. Then I felt guilty and I'd go back and tell the truth. You know that one? Yes, it was really a two. Just... She wrote it down in her book, Bill, because we did two twos and three ones today. I got an A in bathroom going. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 